namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhassa padang dhammang sangkang dhammasami I might video these, so I like to look for the part. <laughs> I like to look smart. <clears throat> Not that I'm a poser. I was on a, uh, this is not a talk, this is just about appearance for monks and nuns. I was on a plane that had some big problems and uh, we were stuck in somewhere like Saudi, not Saudi Arabia, it was one of them places. Anyway, when I got to England, it was in the, it was in all the newspapers and in actual fact they banned the airline after that. It was actually very dangerous. We started to take off after three days but I was lucky when I was there, they put me in a Russian hotel. So one of our hostess was worried about my feeding, and I said, oh, don't worry about my feeding. I was in a, a Russian hotel which fed pilots. I had enough food for three days just in one go, and that was just the breakfast. Anyway, when I got to England, we had a novice here who was a very sweet, very lovely person, so I'm not criticising him, very good teacher in his own right, but... Um, is out the box when it came to dress. And then I always try to keep in public, it's not that it's a pose, you're not posing or trying to give a good impression, but I always like to, you know, in public, outside, on planes, I always try to be what I am, you know, dress appropriate, be dress appropriate, even if I'm on a plane 12, 13 hours. And uh, when we got to England, I got to know these people I was travelling with a little bit, so they'd see. And in the end, when the plane was going to take off, they were wondering whether to fly it. Many people said, I'm not getting on the plane unless the monk gets on. So there was an Englishman who helped me back then, because I needed a taxi. And I'm still friends with that Englishman, he actually might come here. And... Uh, so I said to these things, I said, I've got to get in the, on this plane, if, even if it falls out the sky, you know, at least it will fall out with the people and the Buddhist monk on it. On it. And it's the only time I had a, one of these medallions which people give you in Thailand, which I haven't, I haven't got particular faith in. But when this plane took off, all the windows, everything, the, the, the things were moving. And I said, if there's any power in you, let it be now. And I put it on the side of the plane, you know. Because first time we attempted to take off, halfway up the runway, there was screaming at the back of the plane. And when you looked out the window, the, the petrol fuel was spraying out the end of the wings. And they had to do an emergency uh, break, you know. That, so it shows how quite serious it was. But anyway, the point was, <laughs> this has gone off, the, this is my nature, you see. I start with the Dharma talk and then it's a dyslexic... Uh, uh, <laughs> Mind which floats off into abstraction, not abstractions, but I go from journeys. 
But um, yeah, so the point is, and it's, it's important, you know, I'm talking to monks and nuns really here, in that when they met me, when the, this novice, he came running through a side door and he said, quick, come this way, Ajahn, because there's all the press outside, all the newspapers. And I said, oh, I want to talk to newspapers. <laughs> you know, I'll discuss with the newspaper, I'll get a press conference. And uh, no, I didn't say that. But anyway, so when he came, he had his robe all wrapped round him. He had just come from a car and he had big obnal boots, his walking boots, you know. And I noticed that the people looked at me, then they looked at him. <laughs> they were looking at him and looking at me. And I was all kind of, you know, dressed as I felt the Buddha would be, think, right? And uh, they looked at him, looked at him. And I just looked and I said, he's our punk monk. <laughs> he's our punk monk. So it's always good. Nice thing, like last week, is lovely, Nyanarato, some people know, we've known each other, dearest friends. So, well, I think I'm a friend. He's my friend. I don't know if he regards me as a friend. But um, I've been on an airplane journey with him for about, you know, from Thailand, a long journey on him, and uh, he gets on the plane all like this, you know. Then at the other end, he gets off the plane all like this. And I've actually got up and... Especially on a jumbo, I'd been on the front of a plane on a jumbo and started to reach my robe in the space and everybody goes. Because my sense of humour, I sort of look down and I go, inboard entertainment, there's no charge for this, you know, because they want to know how we put on our robes. Anyway, I thought I'd say that about appearance. So it's always nice for monks to, and nuns to dress, dress appropriately. Though I must say, when I was an Anagarakra, I went in the supermarket in Berkhampstead with the Anagarakaha. We were kitchen manager. I was kitchen manager for about a long time and in charge of the larder. So when people think I just sit around as an old lazy monk, I've actually been through all what most, most have been through. But um, yeah, we were walking around the supermarket one day and the nun was in front of me, Anagarakra, and she had the socks on, leg warmers and... Anagarikas, they get a bit, must be self-conscious self when you're first in white. And I remember and I said, how? And I was in my 40s, 40. And I looked at her walking in front of me and I thought, how? We look like two people who escaped from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, we expected to be Jack Nicholson and run up and shove a pill in our mouth. You know, we looked like a couple of lunatics. It was quite, quite something to get used to. Anyway, I'll start talking in a minute. <laughs> present, present awareness. Why is the present called a present? Because it's a gift. That's a good one. I've got no idea what I'm going to say. I will say something, because I believe these, these, talks are, these talks do go out in public. So I might talk into a, and get a bit political, politically incorrect. So if I get hate mail, I've told somebody, when I get politically incorrect when I talk, and if I think it's going out, I actually say on the thing, if anybody wants to send me any nasty letters, hate mail, I don't care, so don't bother wasting your time. Put me in prison, give me a fine, I don't care. And that's serious, I don't care. But I'm not going to get that politically incorrect. I'm not going to take my clothes off or anything like that. <laughs> anything like that. But I won't get onto that a bit later, but because I say I don't know what I'm going to say. 
Yeah, our job is present. The present, the gift of the present. I remember when I first came to Buddhism, uh, um, I had a kind of, I read a little poem and I'd been into, this is no thing to any attainments or anything like that, but I'd been, you know, I was aware of present awareness from before. You know, when I was about 24, I became a yogi and I met someone who'd been with a guru and something clicked with me, you know, so, you know, and, you know, I felt I knew what it was to be aware of one's awareness, empty awareness. And I remember having this little, um, this, it was like a miniature Satori moment in a, I picked up when I first came to Buddha, I picked up a little Buddhist book and it had poems in. And then one said, um, one of them said, where would I be? What would happen to me if I could see all around me, above and below at once? And just that sentence, just reading that, my mind said, it popped, it was like a little Satori, you know, and I thought, they'd just be seeing, you know, and it wasn't like a, my intellectual, but it was like, actually it's like my mind, because I've got a kind of mind, thought, seeing all around, above and below at once, and I thought, it'd be total seeing, you know, and it was, it was like this old empty seeing, you know, it's like empty seeing, but at that point, as I've mentioned before in another talk, it was the seeing, empty seen, but also just the seeing and just the seen. S-C-N-E. No one there, just the seen. When we're born and all that, we're born with eyes and ears and mouth and nose and these things. And we're always, the conditioning is always go towards, we're going through, like we're going towards and towards freedom and towards enlightenment, hopefully. And, uh, and we kind of design that way. Our eyes are in the front, they look forward, our ears are pointed to the front. We feed ourselves from the front. We smell from the front. Everything is in the front. <laughs> so there's, right from an early age, we've got this sense that we're, going through, going through our life, and then when we come to Buddhism, we're all, we don't realize, you know, and then condition past and future. And we always talk about coming back to the present, but in actual fact, we're never out of the present. There is only the present, which is momentary, and the reality is there, like a hologram in the present. So we never, we never actually leave the present. And that's what we say. When our mind goes off and we get distracted, the moment we notice it, we're back. You know, we actually haven't been anywhere. But what's manifested is an image, a memory, or something like that. Something's come up, and then we, 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 it doesn't just dissolve away. It doesn't just poof away. We cling to it, the habit to cling to it and hold it, and then we've got past and future things like this. So that's it, that's a Dharma talk. <laughs> Finished now. Can I go, can I go have my cup of tea now? <laughs> and drink a cup of tea from the front. I made a, a, a Renita, he went into stitches and laughed, he's got a funny sense of humour. But um, he's very funny actually. 
And uh, I said to him, I made him laugh once. I said, actually, you know, they say a snake. The reason why we don't make snakes because it's the rawest form of us. It's just one big long intestine with an opening at either end. And then gradually through evolution, the snakes have developed. And then you get the lizard, the little arm. And then gradually the whole thing is just, it's just to keep this intestine going. And then we develop these. And I said, our whole life, everything is all to get everything to put it into this intestine and it passes through us, you know. And then we, all, the other dust, oh, all the other stuff comes with it. You know, we have babies, baby snakes, that they do the same thing. <laughs> it's just ways of looking at what we are. Now, something... Because these talks do grow, I want to mention that um, when I first came to Buddhism, I used to, you know, I didn't see my family for about seven years. I went off to Thailand. And then I went into a place at Kanchanaburi. I was with Ajahn Kwaisako when that first opened and Yanarato was the second monk. There's just a few of us there. There's, five. There's myself, Yanarato, there's an Israeli monk, there's an English monk, <laughs> there's an English monk who's an ex-boy scoutmaster. And he used to act like a Boy Scout master. Just the English, you need to be English to appreciate. I was a Boy Scout master. One time we found a cobra. There was a cobra in Wat Chat under the bookshelf. I went to get something. I said, Phew. I said, it looks like a cobra under there, under the bookshelf. I wanted a piece of paper. Then, oh no, I think it's a. And then he came in, the ex Boy Scout master. And I said, I think there's a cobra. He went, oh, stand back, stand back. <laughs> he immediately became the Boy Scout Master, put on his glasses. He said, stand back, stand back, get out of the way, get out of the way. I'll deal with this. We said, look, this is a cobra, you know. They come right up on their tail and they kill you. And we were saying all this, no, oh, no, no, no. And he got this stick and he started poking this stick. <laughs> and this thing came out from the bookshelf and started going, whoo, whoo, whoo. He's going, don't be stupid. No, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I thought, I'd better run round because there's a back door and what this Boy Scout Master is going to do, he's going to hook this cobra out of the back door. And it was the one prior, and someone's going to be doing, start doing walking meditation out the back door and land up with a cobra wrapped around their neck, you know. So, and I remember going around, running out of the office, around to, to the front. And as I run out, I see this cobra go <laughs> through the air out of the back door, you know. Anyway. So we were in Kanchanaburi, back to the plot. And I knew, and then suddenly, after I was there two years, and then, um, I think it was two years, and uh, then what happened was, 16, a person came into the monastery and they thought, I might get a bit emotional now, because I tend to get, can get emotional. <laughs> I don't even find it hard to even start it. Um, what was it? Yeah, someone came in, he had 16 Newsweeks. And uh, I started looking at these Newsweeks. And I, we had no idea about the Yugoslavian war. And it was like a horror show, seeing this Yugoslavian war, what was going on in Yugoslavia, and the killing and just everything was terrible. And then I went to Bangkok, and a friend of mine was passing through, and I turned on his, I turned on his television, and there was the news, and it was... It was the Yugoslavian war again, and I actually 
actually started to cry because of what was being seen on the thing. And um, it was actually very touching. There was a, there was a, a kind of a vehicle, army vehicle, with two people who were rescuing people. And there was an old couple come to their door. And they said, look, we can't take you because we can only take you if the war is near, you know, if there's evidence of the war. And then just as they said that, just as they said that, you kind of, dum, dum, in the distance, very faint. And this man looked at the other the woman. There's a man and a woman in the army. And he said, I think that was a bomb or something, was it? They said, they said oh, yeah. So they, they said these, oh, come, quick, quick, come, come. So it really touched me, that slightest excuse that this old man and old woman in there. So, so this is, I'm coming round to why I'm going to get into what I'm into. I'll try not to keep you too long. Anyway, here's one problem. We used to sit all night. You only sit to half past nine now. And you go, when's the talk finished? Time for my cup of tea. <laughs> Time for my cocoa. Um, yeah, so if I would after that, I'd always, when I've been back, it's different when you're kind of junior, and we don't, we don't encourage it, and I don't look at it all the while, but I tend to keep in contact with the news. You know, so I see the news. I don't want to be that remote from the new, the world. And I can handle it. I might cry or something like that. I think that's off or something like that. But generally, I'm all like that. I'm going to still sit there and be peaceful. I have my mind distract onto other things. Buddha rupas and clay and moulds and what I'm doing now, art projects. I can go straight from a war to an art project. Um, yeah, so, but, but, yeah, see, what I want to get into a little bit, and it's, uh, it's in the world, I look outside and in the world, and it's been going on for a few years, and now psychologists found mindfulness. Mindfulness. So every time you think, it's mindful, and then you suddenly hear, oh, in Parliament, there's a mindful room. And many old parliamentarians, the MPs, they go in the room, they'd be mindful for a little while. But, and this is Buddhist, this is straight down the line, Buddhist, the Buddha, uh, impeccable in conduct and understanding. And what does he teach first? He teaches sila. And whenever I hear the outside, well, it doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, in orgies or getting drunk or falling all over the place. Though I must say, I did mention to a gentleman today, I was absolutely really touched by the drug problem in America. It's getting so bad, you know, some of these drugs are just killing people all the while. Um, but I hear, the, I, I hear so much about mindfulness, 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 and yet, and yet the sealer, I never hear anybody mention sealer. And if, say, Christian, if I've heard anything like a Christian talking about Christianity, that's always, it's very always met with negative, oh, they're just moralistic zealots, you know, and I've heard a lot of this. You know, and the criticism of religion. Though a lot of people are becoming interested in Buddhism, seems to be. And there are, um, so it's not a knock on all society, but it's something that if this, this, if this goes out, if this does go, you know, people will hear this. It's, it's, most of the Buddhists know it, hopefully, you know. But we are like a... You've got philosophies now. You've got postmodernism and postmodernism and, and uh, social relativism. You know, where you deconstruct, deconstruction, postmodernism, I deconstruct. The conventionals of the world, like the world, the body and all this sort of thing, is irrelevant. It's what I think. Or what I feel, mostly. They don't realise it's what I feel. 
Because if you take a different view, you get a lot of anger and abuse, criticism, which is actually more like how they feel because of the, the, the way they want to follow their life. And this is not a nick in uh, criticism. Everybody can, critis everybody can follow their life in whichever way they want. Anybody can be whatever they like. I'm not, I'm, I've got bigotry you know, in that kind of way. I'm not homophobic, I'm not this, I'm not that. You know, my best friends for over 40 years was gay. And uh, my wife used to get a bit annoyed because she said, he, he fancies you more than me and he's so good looking. <laughs> she used to quite fancy him, you know. But, um, you, know, so, you know, so I got none of that stuff. So it's not a knock of that, but it's, it's to do with um, interpretations of things. So you have this deconstruction. Ultimately, we're all quantum mechanics. We're all in quantum mechanics. We're little more than a hologram. Even the Buddha says this, froth on the sea. And there's a, lecture, there's a reality where this can actually be perceived. That there's suddenly, there, there can be the insight into that we are little more than a hologram on one level. But on the conventional level, in order to see that, to see it in here, to have an insight in here, takes conditions. We are conditioned. When you want, when a computer, someone was into computer, I was speaking to someone today. I had some nice conversations the last couple of days. I'd been after the meal in there for two and a half hours. It might just be me shooting my mouth off, but. You know, it's quite, <laughs> you know, there's good people, meditators and that. Um, yeah, if, there, if someone wants a computer, and I hope someone might <laughs> talk into the microphone, they want a special program, you put in the right program, you get the result. You know, where someone like I came along, go like this, and, you know, or someone who, someone who thinks, oh, well, the computer's just a construct. You know, so I just bang the keys and hopefully I'll get the result I want. You know, and this is what this is what's it's called. A, for me, it's called uh, um, muddling up of levels of reality. It's taking one level of reality and trying to apply it to another. You know, and there's a nice story. I think the Guru Ramdas talks a story about the hippies one night. You know, and uh, well, I was a hippie, so. You know, one night, just the seeing, seeing, seeing through things, you know, they've taken stuff, so the mind-expanding stuff. So the next day, they get up and they clear up, and the guy says, it's your turn to do the washing up. And the other guy says, but we're all one. See, so he's done an up-level, what they call an up-level. So you come in with a new up-level. You say, yeah, but it's your turn to do the washing up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so now, say the things outside, postmoderns and things like this, it's all, oh, it's all a construct, everything's a construct. All that's meaningless, it's what I think I am and everything like that. But what they don't notice is that also they're, they'll scream and be really angry at you, but they don't realize their anger is also their own personal construct, if that's the case. They can't apply, it can't be applied to oneself or the way I feel, because all the feelings get in the way, you know? My first teacher, I asked him, because it was after the, um, the kind of hippie culture. I don't think this is making any sense, or, you know, it might go out, it might go out, you know, somebody might hear it and think, hell, oh, it sounds sensible. Um, I won't just do what I want to do now. <laughs> I said to him about the psychedelic age and all that sort of thing. And he said, yeah, he said, and it was dead on, because I've seen this, I saw this experience, I can tell experience which are so 
clear on once conditions change, you change. And then people can have an insight, they can realise their jit, their mind, empty, or they can realise empty mind, selfless mind. They can have a moment of that. Then they think, uh, you get gurus, think they're enlightened, and they think, oh, and this is... Our. So then they go abusing their students. Because they think, well, I can be mindful and aware while I'm doing all this, and I'm teaching you how to be free. But you notice when people abuse, say, in religions or something like that, you notice most gurus, they always abuse the young, beautiful 20-year-olds. You know, they don't, <laughs> they don't have affairs with the 85-year-old devotees. It's always the young. And you think, they think, oh, how come there must be something wrong in my mind, you know? Because I seem to always want to teach the, <laughs> teach the young ones. Um, and uh, I said to him about that, and he said, yes. He said, he says, oh, and one night, they can see, you know, they have an intuition, they have an insight into anatta, and then, the, then they go out and do everything they think an anatta would like to do. <laughs> and you get this. And then they wonder why they suffer. They're still suffering. It's because they've had an insight, which is very nice. It's very nice, these insights. Um, but that ongoing wisdom is lacking. And it's the sila which creates this ongoing wisdom. Why does it create an ongoing wisdom? Because usually when, they talk, when people talk about mindfulness outside, they're talking about attention. You know, and I always, many people heard me use this thing, like the safe breaker, he listens to a safe, and he can get the combination. He's got incredible mindfulness. No, he's got incredible concentration and attention. But his mind is full of greed. And in actual fact, the purpose of sila is to clear the mind of unwholesome states, which is the greed, hatred, and delusion to an extent, because delusion is like a it's like a shadow on our perception. And in actual fact, we have, and you know, we have perceptions when we perceive something, you know. You know, I look at you now, I see there's separate people on one level. When in actual fact, you're all in appearing in my mind. And it doesn't mean you don't exist. It's just that light travels, brings your image into my mind, and it turns it upside down like a camera, and then it puts all its lots of stuff, subliminal stuff on it, and then goes, that's what's out there. And then, I, then it projects it straight out there again. So I always say on retreats, you know, go out to the side of the field and take in the whole countryside. That's actually all in your, that's actually all, all your mind because it's reflected on the surface of your mind. And it is a theory of mine that when people say they have a tremendous oneness experience, and then they think, oh, it's God. You know, I've seen God, because everything's at one. But this is a, this is a Winnemaloism. But in actual fact, what you're seeing is the surface of your own mind, like a sheet of glass. And what's lacking on outside when people don't mindfulness? They're often, often just talking about attention, but they don't mention the sealer because they don't realise how important that is. Because it's the sealer. It is the the sealer that brings the mind a glow to the mind which makes the mind mirror-like and then what does a mirror do? A mirror reflects. 
And if you have a philosophy behind it, like Christianity, or, and they've got their different words for it. I know someone, one of my family members in the middle of grief, you know, had a, a, had a tremendous, thought she'd actually received Greek grace because she was a, she was a Christian. You know, she had a, but to me, I didn't say, oh no, that's a vipassana, you had an insight, that's an insight. Your mind became so clear. Um, but the mind becoming clear like a mirror, then reflecting conditionality, so what we're training to do is, is to always be on the edge of attentiveness. And then at any moment, you, we, we are reflective. So we're going in that way. We contemplate things like, I say to people, when you go into a room, first thing notice, take note of the space. You know, a bit like poor teaches this, but it's always, I've always been a bit spacious. <laughs> it's called stupidity, makeshift spacious. <laughs> but... Um, so, and it's that quality which the, the, the sealer thinks, because there's no remorse. No remorse, no regrets. And it makes a, it makes a, it makes a difference. Some people have natural, got natural sealer. There was some man came the other day, and he'd never drunk, he'd come up, I won't say about his upbringing, it was, he had some very unpleasant things, but with his family, and it taught him, so he said he never took drugs, come from London, part of London, where most probably, most people have indulged at some time, of older people. So, but he had a natural, and I said, well, you've just got natural sealer has made you how you are, and he's interested in meditation, but it's travelled with him through his life as a natural thing. You know, the advantage of a religious teaching is that the religious teaching, and it's explained to you why it is, and so you know what you're doing. Whereas if it's just something that's travelled with you, you can, go, you can go off a bit later if you don't know. There's a, there's a reason for that. There's a psychological... The mental factors are in balance, you know. It's bringing... When we, when we meditate, when we're meditating, we're bringing mental factors into balance, like our computer. It takes certain, for us to see into the nature of things. It's all well and good having a philosophy that dismantles everything and says, oh, everything's mind and everything, all conventions are, you know, and all this. Um, but what people have usually done, when it's not like that, it's in the head. They've learned it's good philosophy and I want to be my true self, you know, and if you disagree, I'll punch you on the nose. You know, or I'll close you down, or I'll make sure you lose your job. And I hear, I've heard a lot of people who have had very unpleasant, their lives made very unpleasant because of people holding on to their, their opinions, which are very, which are very um, harder than rock. You know, they say the material world, it's all construct. But their opinions are like iron sometimes, you know. So I wish in the outside world people started with the... But then again, you know, you start mentioning Sila. You know, you've got to be able to really explain it. Why? Why? We are conditioned. You have to be able to, in order to see, in order to see conditionality and to see that things are illusionary, there are illusionary aspects, this takes the manipulation of conditions on the conventional level. You have to work with the conventional level in order to see beyond the conventional level. If you just think, you read a book, oh, that's beyond the conditional level, you're usually still, into that, you're still in the conditional level and you're acting according to that. There's not really the knowledge 
deeper knowledge. That's why the Buddha is impeccable in conduct and understanding. Then when someone's like that, or like Ajahn Chah, I mean, his linear was impeccable, totally impeccable. But, you know, I had the fortunate to say, to meet him is as free as a bird. Free as a bird, no regrets, no nothing, you know. I think Ajahn Smedo told me once that Mahasi Sadao came to um, Chithurst and he said, it's quite interesting to look into someone's eyes, looked into Mahasi Sadao's eyes and realised, there's no one there, <laughs> there's no one there. <laughs> that it takes what we're training, this presence. When people first come into monasteries, it's a bit, it can be a bit difficult, you know, it takes, it takes us a long time to, to think because we have old habits and even 30, well, I've been over 30 years, I've been a meditator over 40 years, it takes years and years. I was a particularly hard case, so I had to be years and years take everybody else a lot quicker than me, I tell you. I'm from Luton. I mean, it's definitely... I remember Ajahn Pasano saying to me once in Thailand, he said, I have to meditate, he said, and I really have to get free in this life, he said, because, do you just think about it? He said, I was born as a hockey player in Canada. He said, that's, you know, so... <laughs> I have to grab the chance where I got it. No telling where I'll land up next time. No telling. Take the advantage. Take the advantage of the conditions. And when we come in, if we're patient, we just have to let this, the old stuff, keep our sealer and uh, let some of these old habits, deep psychological urges and surges, which usually they come up, I always say they're like spots that come up. You know, or sometimes, People first come in, some people breeze into a monastery and breeze it, other people have a difficult time, we're all unique. Some people have it like a difficult time, it's like a volcano comes up. <laughs> a Vesuvius, an internal Vesuvius. Ajahn Sumedho said a holocaust. It's the whole thing of the holocaust. The total burning. <laughs> he used to use some good expressions like this, the total burning. <laughs> if you remember, Ajahn Smedo's old talk, I want down off this cross. The total burning, that's where the term Holocaust comes from. For the Buddhist and all people in spiritual work, you know, and I know Christians and what have you, as Smedo quoted this years ago from T.S. Eliot, I think it's T.S. Eliot, he said, yeah, I can't remember the words, I have to think. The intersection between, the contemplation of the intersection between time and the timeless is the occupation of the saint. I always say, the intersection between time and timelessness is not only for the saint, but it's for all people who are into spiritual practice. Because their mind is between time and the intersection between time, timelessness. That in time, contemplating time.
timelessness, but it's being contemplated in a silent, with a silent reflective mind, not with the intellect. And the silent reflective mind takes sila, samadhi, panya. Someone might say, right, what about black magic? They do really nasty things, like Alistair Crowley and all these people. Look at the mess they get in, usually. <laughs> do you want to be an Alistair Crowley, a black magician? Do you want to go the dark, the dark side of the force? Do you want to be a Darth Vader or an Obi-Wan Kenobi? My grandson used to call me Grandad Yoda. From Star Wars. <laughs> He's always Granddad Yoda. He said, I don't like your robes very much. He said, someone said, you didn't like robes. When my son died, when my son died, he said, now Dad's dead, you could have his clothes. <laughs> I don't like the robes. I said, he was a big, bit bigger than me. <laughs> so what else was there? Nothing, that's about it, really. <laughs> I did feel I want... I mean, I don't know if these are tapes, whether they go out and people listen, but it's so important. It's sealer is so important. And I, I know someone now who, who uh, you know, a um, spiritual person who feels he's lost everything. Spiritually, he feels he's lost everything. He's been plunged into... Everything has deserted him spiritually. So he feels like a dead zone inside because he felt he broke sealer, but and broke big sealer. But in actual fact, it's a lot of it is, he must probably listen to this, and if he does, a lot of it is his own mind, he's got a self-judging mind and an analytical mind, and which is actually building his, his own hell, really. And now he says, you know, if I was a monk, again, he said, I would just, I wouldn't teach anything, just sealer. Sila, you know, and I can tell some st stories. I tell you, I tell you one story. I'm a friend, he went to America, and then, and then I'm finished. And uh, it, it was back in the late sixties, around that time, and he was very free and breezy, and you know, wow. Yeah. And he had this very beautiful girlfriend called Nikki, and she was a little artist. She used to embroider very beautiful little embroideries of of sunrises, but they were all small, and she would always be with her in Mordrin. She was very beautiful, everybody thought she was very beautiful. And she had a very Greek, she had a face like a Greek sculptor. Sculptor, and being an artist, I can see beauty in men and women, and all. it doesn't mean I'm binomial, what is it? <laughs> binomial, <laughs> what is that? You know, it doesn't mean I'm bi or anything like that. I could just appreciate beauty in lots of things. And I can also see Dukri and lots of things. When people say how beautiful the forest is, I said, how beautiful the forest is. I did a retreat in Italy, and I said, it is, it's incredibly beautiful. I mean, I'm an arty-farty type, so I see all colours and lichen and all this sort of thing. I said, but if you look close, there's little insects are trying to eat the littler insects. The creepers are scaling around the trees. There's whole trees in Sri Lanka where Creepers have gone round the tree and the tree has died. And all you have now is this great lump of creeper going up into the sky. You know, people come and say, How? What a tree are them? I said, They are fossilized arahants. <laughs> They're in the tree, all the thing has grown round them. 
you know, there's sculptures of the Jain saint, Mahavira, and he's standing naked like this, and it all creep around his legs. Have you ever seen these sculptures? Oh, I do. Anyway, I've seen them. <laughs> what was I saying? I forgot what I was saying then. <laughs> Never mind. Ah, Nikki, yeah, Nikki, and uh, this friend of mine, and of course he was always breezy, and he was always talking to beautiful ladies and all this sort of thing. And I said, you know, one day Nikki, and he said, and I was a Buddhist by then. Well, I was a yogi, hatha yoga fanatic. And he said, well, you know, if Nikki, you know, I'm cool. <laughs> all this, all this, I said. I'm cool if Nicky, I'm all right. Anyway, they went off to Ibiza for their holiday, for a holiday to stay in Ibiza for a friend. Then suddenly there's a knock on my flat door and this guy comes in and he looked quite distressed. And he was a pretty cool guy. He was a pretty cool guy. Uh, but he actually sat down and he started crying. You know. And I said, what's happened? He said, he said well, we were in Ibiza and Nicky went out and she bumped into a guy and she wasn't, she wasn't you know, somebody who was just going to go off with anybody or anything like that. And he said it was, it was love at first sight. They just, like that. You know, and they most probably perhaps still live together and got grandchildren and everything. Nick is most probably seven, yeah, seven now. Don't look so Greek. <laughs> um, and uh, he said, oh, he said, I never believed it would affect me like that. I just stood to him, I said, conditions change, we change. <laughs> you know, he was a perfect example of that, you know, someone who's had it just turn round, you know, someone thinks you can get away with something. You don't get away with anything. Many are past. I should start a communist. I saw someone last Christmas, you know, like the monks know, I'm going to go on a bit. A little bit, five minutes. I promise I'll stop after five. I try and keep my talks at about 40 minutes, you know. Um, but but I, I went to, uh, people know that I go to my family every Christmas, in actual fact, just to meet my daughter. My daughter's 52. She's a horsewoman, professional, dancing horses. You know, what they call it, dressage. She's always seen me little films of her on another horse. I've got it to do this. Um, I want to say a train one to do the cooking or something. But, um, yeah, and then the other Christmas, it was, doesn't I go off and wear, wear funny hats and blow things and, you know, go mad? My family are pretty conservative. I actually took Winita home for Christmas one time and they loved him. My family loved him. And I said, don't tell him he want to come next Christmas. They said, no, he can, he can come next Christmas. No, he want a bigger present next Christmas. <laughs> If you ask him what he wants, he'll tell you. But uh, no, they loved him. Um, but this one, one, one year, the other year, we went to a place where my daughter's friend took her horse, because my daughter didn't have a horse. She's got one now again. She's always had a horse all her life. And uh, what it was, they hired some big chalets in a big place, which is a big livery with horses and things like that, so people can take their horses there. And it was Christmas, and I had a chalet, and they got little chalets and all that, so... It's all very, you know, together. I don't lose it particularly. And, uh, but at one point, because her friend was having trouble with this horse, and Sasha's 
Even, I don't say it's because my daughter, but she's been a professional horsewoman all her life. You know, White City with the show jumpers and all this sort of stuff. Um, so she tries to teach this one. But anyway, the man there who owns the whole place was trainer and he trained circus horses as well. And they've got a big arena, all wooden, eight foot high. He said sometimes he has to have a ladder on the inside just in case it's a big wild stallion, then he can jump out over the wall. So we went and we were on a platform around the outside, you know. I watched him train this girl, not the girl, but the horse, and he was saying how to be with a horse. And it was a very beautiful thing to watch, and we watched for about an hour. And this horse, which didn't know what it was doing, he said, you have to train it to think for itself, has to realise. He said, people jump on a horse, they kick it to death, and then they come home in the evening and they said, I had a great ride today. And then they wonder why the horse don't want to go out the next day, because you've actually pummeled the horse. You know, he said, when with a horse, by the time he's finished training, he said, these race horses, they don't whip them. You think they're whipping them? Or, he said, no. And he said, a horse, you should be able to just touch parts of it or just do something because it's learnt itself. And I watched this horse and it started. And first, it kind of tried to run up the side. And then he went, no. And then he did it all with, without whipping it or touching it. And then they had the horse just going around. Then he went, and it went the other way. And gradually, over an hour, he bought this horse to do everything he wanted. He said, when it does this, you do this. And then he did something. He said, no, if you do this, then later on, you've only got to touch its ear in that way, and it will do the same responses. He said, and he was saying about the females, the female horses are much better, they're much quicker clicking on what they need to do to do a peaceful life. And it was lovely to watch him. And at the end, even the horse was here, and the head was here. And the, the horse kind of just looked like that, like that. And he went, no, there's nothing over there to look at. <laughs> and the horse just went. And waited for him to talk, stop talking. And, kind of went. and then he leaned on it, and the horse leaned on him. And it was remarkable. I mean, my, say my daughter can do this sort of stuff. And, not, and she said, it's interesting to watch another guy, a goaded circus horses. But the funny thing is, at the end of it, I don't mean that, I don't mean this as any insult or anything personal for anagarikas or novices or young monks. But after, because I couldn't resist, he went like that, and we did that, and I said, "That's how we train novices in a monastery." <laughs> and all of us, we train ourselves in this way. I said, because at first you come in there, you kind of, you want to be in there. Well, a horse don't particularly; it wants its food, but. You want to be in the monastery, everything's telling you to get in the monastery, and then you get in, you think, hang on, how do I get out of here for a day? <laughs> oh, it's the first time that's happened. This is on film. Oh dear, I smell myself up, do my tie up. <laughs> and it was quite funny, I said, that's how. And I said, it is, it's like being in the monastery. First you try and run up the wall, but you realise that don't work, it's better just to plod around. Then they say do this, and then you, got, you, get your, you get your things you have to do during the day, so then you go and do that. They said, no, don't do that. And being at half past seven, okay. Now, some of them say it's been institutionalised, but it isn't being institutionalised if you're learning to be mindful and you're in a structure. It's institutionalised if you go to a place and they just plonk you and plonk you like an old people's home. Then it's different. Then you fight back. <laughs> you know, like in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You become disruptive. Someone said they, remind, they met me and said, you remind me of Jack Nicholson in One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. Bit out of the box. Bit wild. And he's better looking than me, I think. He's about 90 now. 
So it was quite funny to watch this man with this horse. I said, that's how we train ourselves. And then we do. We got, you've got this duty to do that duty. All right, I go and do that. I do this. And I watch my mind. I just watch. And you're like, like this young horse. And this young horse was on. And then the girl went to train. And he said, no, just you get in front. Go in front. And, and, then, <laughs> and this horse is obeying, you know. But as soon as it got near her, it started... Because it wasn't that it was thinking I'll take advantage of her. It's just it hasn't learned from her what's expected of it. And it doesn't mean you're making the horse a slave to you. Because horses, my wife, my wife, my, my daughter just got a horse. She said she could tell when she got on this horse that the horse loves her. And she loved the horse. She'd gone to a lot of trouble getting this horse. So she'd been all over the place, Denmark and everything, to get the horse she wants and she's got she's she's got this horse she's set her mind on two-year-old and you can tell she sent a little film you can tell that this horse actually enjoys doing what it's doing she just touches it and it's you know beautiful horse i think the buddha talks of the horse doesn't he training the horse i think joseph goldstein gives a thing like first in meditation they give 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 a horse a big pasture if you restrict too much, you've got to be gentle. You whip it and dick, dick your spurs in. But if you do it right, the horse does what you want. And we're the same. With sila, samadhi, panya. Finish. <laughs>